Welcome to the Calgary Sessions. This is episode number 91. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Humphreys. Today's guest, um, my sister-in-law, Dr. Laura Stinton. She sent me an email months ago. She's like, you should have my cousin on the show. I was like, yes, I should. So uh, please go ahead, name and who you are. Well, thanks, Jeff. My name is Phil, and Phil Robertson, and I'm one of the co-founders of Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters here in Calgary. And uh, yeah, happy to be here today. Cool. Um, it's it's going to be a fun conversation. Like I just said mm-hmm. to you, I said um, I never do any research, so obviously I know your brand. Yeah, I know what you do. So there's that. But as far as you mm-hmm. know, the whole gist of the story, the story uh, show is to like hear the story. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a fun one for me. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I'm glad you said yes because actually Laura's mom also sent me an email like last <laughs> month. She's like, you should have Phil on the show. I'm like, yeah, your daughter said the same thing. I'm sorry, yeah. Sorry so, you had to pester me to get here. No, I'm okay. excited to be here. Yeah. No, this would be, this would be really cool. So yeah. um, the gist of the show is I like the guests to go back as far as they want. Sure. So how they grew up, what inspired them, um, what what kind of people influenced you, mm. you know, where it was. And then we just kind of weave a path to where you are today. So sure. this will be, um, like I said, I know nothing. So yeah. this is like firsthand experience, which is makes this really fun for me. Okay, for sure. So yeah, take it back. Yeah, I was sort of thinking I would head back to some of my uh, family influences that got me interested in sort of uh, taste and flavor. Probably most prominently would be my aunt Bonnie, uh, so so Margie's mm-hmm. uh, sister, yep. and she sadly passed away a number of years ago. Um, but she was a huge influence for me. I spent a ton of time with her. Uh, I felt a real uh, simpatico connection with her, and she it, she was a very gentle woman that didn't sort of um, um, ram anything down your throat. I, you know, the, her influence was sort of subtle, mm. uh, in a sense that I just was exposed to uh, her approach to. I don't know, call it style. Um, she had an incredible style and uh, a real appreciation for f- for food. And um, yeah, that just was probably my one of my initial influences. Like early? Were you youngster? When you youngster. Started? So yeah, I grew up um, skiing a lot, ski okay. racing. Yep. And so uh, on the weekends, I would head out to Banff with uh, my uh, Uncle Billy and Aunt Bonnie and cousins. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would ski, and so I ended up. She became almost like a second mom. Mm. Ended up spending a lot of time with that family, and so, like I said, you know, there was no conscious um, uh, influence at that time. It was just sort of a subconscious mm-hmm. exposure to to this kind of stuff yep. growing up and getting appreciation for. I think also artisanship. My uh, my uncle was an engineer as well. My uncle Billy, and. He also was a really great uh, woodworker, and just seeing him uh, get into his hobby of woodworking, and he built in a beautiful canoe. It took him years no to way. build it, uh, and that they ended up using. Mm-hmm. Just seeing his uh, his approach to this, and I loved the the engineering side because I've always been interested in how things work, getting behind the scenes and mm. trying to um, un- get under the hood mm-hmm. and see how stuff works. And that in combination with this sort of like artisanship, I, I think in, was the, the initial thing that cultivated my, my sense that this was the path that I should take. Mm. And it was very subconscious. Like, it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't, it's just you experiencing these things and just mm-hmm. these little, little mental yeah, notes. Yeah, it, it, it was so subtle and so incremental. And it took a long time for me to kind of realize that this was where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do because... Mm. I was very interested in computers and technology 
and so so I went the route of electrical engineering mm-hmm. after high school, and I loved it. Mm. I loved university; it was my jam. And uh, I went got into the working world. I oh, know I'm skipping ahead here, but that's good. I got, got you. <laughs> I got into the working world, and I loved the problems. They were challenging and interesting, but I just felt like something was unfulfilled. Mm. Something um, wasn't working for me. There wasn't enough of a social and uh, aspect to my work. I didn't feel like there was enough meaning to it, mm-hmm. but I was also missing some of this like artisanship, sort of like culinary mm. um, tastes, flavor, this kind of thing. Yep. And I've I, I recognized early on when I was a teenager that I really care a lot about taste and aroma. I think I might mm. have like a heightened sense for it. Mm. I have a theory that people that are really attracted to food or delicious drinks or whatever, they have a more acute sense of taste mm. than maybe the average person. Yep. So that's sort of what draws them to that and why it's more meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. So if you can uh, taste or smell more acutely, then mm-hmm. those things mean more to you mm-hmm. and you would end up gravitating towards them. Yep. And so that had been the case for me all along. Always. Yeah, and like, so... like Sorry, Yeah. growing up you know, in whatever kitchen you're in, mm-hmm. Do you remember like the smell of like bread or pasta? Stuff? Like, do you, do you like vivid memories of? Yeah. Like some people are very visual, right? They yeah. remember what's on the TV or what the color of the wall was. Yeah. Your head goes to. I did, and the thing that's really interesting is it's not like I grew up in a place where we were a real culinary family. Like my kids are so exposed, more exposed to it now. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I make these like really elaborate meals and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love wine, so I drink these wines and they get a little taste of them and mm-hmm. obviously coffee. So it's a totally different environment for my kids now. I didn't really grow up in that environment. But I think nevertheless, because of, for whatever reason, my more acute sense of smell and taste, the stuff that I did love, I really loved and it's very implanted in my mm-hmm. brain. Mm-hmm. And my uh, Aunt Bonnie was a little more uh, inclined to... Uh, to make more interesting uh, food, mm-hmm. and that I really remember and mm. significant. So yeah, I think again this sort of incremental thing yep. that um, created this desire in me, or this love of that that food and wine and flavor mm-hmm. more than anything. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be come from any particular place. Flavor and aroma. I'm actually very. I'm so sensitive to aroma that if someone walked in here with a strong cologne, yeah. I, I just like couldn't focus. No way. It would just like totally consume me. Hmm. So yeah, it's just I have a really sensitive sense of smell, hmm. as it turns out. So and that's very connected to taste, right? Yeah. So you really most of what you taste is through smell, or most of the nuance of what you taste is really through smell. Hmm. So in many ways, it comes back to someone's ability to smell yep. is their ability to taste. So anyway, these, these things sort of like built in me gradually. I think there's like some physiological thing though I can't really explain yep. where I have that yep. um, more acute sense. Did you, um, so growing up, racing, ski racing, sport background, like heavy sport background or was it kind of? It, it, yeah, good question. So my interest in, I was obsessed with sports, but mm-hmm. it wasn't in the same way that, someone would be if they were say registered in hockey and you know committed to that. Yeah. I was um, I, I liked to dabble in a lot of different things. So I did get pretty involved in ski racing, but then kind of that kind of lapsed and I moved on to something else. And mm-hmm. so I did I like to say I did pretty much every sport under the sun 
for a short amount of time. I never really went super deep mm-hmm. in any particular sport. I had breadth yep. more. I just went uh, into lots of different ones. And it was a great outlet for me because I just had so much energy. I needed to expend <laughs> somehow without beating up my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> he felt it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sport thing was always there. You know, you, you kind of went through, you kind of got to university, but what was going on in like junior high, high school? You yeah. know, what was your, this, I want, I'm going to get you back on this, yeah, like yeah. The, on, the ta- <laughs> on, the, on the taste piece, because the taste is, well, I, I do have, I'm going to sit on a question, but yeah, yeah. you know, what's going on in junior high, high school? Yeah, you know, what are you, where's Honestly, your? just uh, like a lot of kids figuring myself out, yep. you know, have the classic existential angst. I was a really small kid, mm-hmm. so I had complex about that. Yep. I was pretty shy. Um, didn't, yeah, I didn't have a lot of confidence. So I spent most of junior high and then high school even more so invested in individual stuff. Yep. Hence the sport thing. The sport was also a way for me to feel like I could do something. Yep. I was capable. Uh, I think that helped me build confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was truly ultra shy. Mm-hmm. I'd walk into a room, people I would be so shy, I wouldn't even, I couldn't even talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. And that was just, just, I didn't have a sense of self yet. And I truly believe that we all develop that at a different pace. Yeah. And some people go quick and early and some people take longer. And yeah. I was the one that took yeah, longer. Yeah. yeah, me too. I didn't like, yeah. still to this day, I don't like groups. Yeah. I just don't like uh, one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I'm totally fine. Mm-hmm. You throw me in a room with a bunch of people and it's a, it's a, it's not yeah. a comfort spot for me. Um, so university, yeah. You go into what? Were you like um, a talented student? Like you were? The good question. No, actually, um, I was a decidedly average student, hmm. especially in high school. I just think this so identity struggle thing just threw a wrench in my ability to. Do, I mean, I was, I didn't really have the confidence mm-hmm. to really feel like I could really excel. Hmm. So I scraped into university, kind of with the lowest marks you could get into engineering with because it was like pretty hard program to get into. Yeah. Uh, I had all the classes, but I just like got mm-hmm. in the bottom tier. Mm-hmm. Sorry, before you go there, mm-hmm. um, where did music fit in your life in high school? And the reason I'm asking you is because mm-hmm. as you're, you know, the, not the identity crisis, but when you're looking yeah. for your identity at that age, I feel like music is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was, I got turned on to like punk. Like yeah. No effects, bad religion, like kind of like heavy, yeah. loud stuff. And for whatever reason, the angst that was in me yeah. fit with this music. Yeah. Was there, was music a it's, thing for you at that funny age? funny that you say that. I would say not really. Hmm. No. Um, it was the my, athletic side. Yeah, just the athletic side. Hmm. That was my way of kind of yeah, venting and expending energy. And that's where I kind of like drove my yeah. uh, teenage angst was into the athletics. Mm. And I remember seeing people that got into that kind of music and I was perplexed as to why they liked it. <laughs> it was a, I'm still perplexed. Yeah, it's, it, when I listen to it, like I catch it every <laughs> I'm like, man, that's a, like it's a aggressive yeah. and fast and just like. It just, it's like un, so unsettling. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> well I said. Mean, I, everyone's got their own thing. So mm-hmm. like, no, no offense to anyone. No. Yeah, I personally find it kind of like jarring. Yeah. Anyway, I, it, it is. Yeah. I don't listen to it any, anymore. Like that was, it was just yeah. a, a moment in time for me. So, yeah. uh, university, just slide yeah. in. And you knew that you wanted engineering right away? Like, were you. Um, so, so, even though I was an average student, I had two things I excelled at. 
computers and uh, I did an electronics class uh, that I, it was a self-paced class and I finished it like three months early. Mm. Uh, my friends all failed it. So we kind of knew that they weren't going that way. And so there were these two areas, um, this electronics class and then computers where I really felt it was just easy and mm. I excelled. So that directed me pretty naturally into electrical and computer engineering. Mm. And, but when I went in, it was a different ball game. It was way harder than high school. High school, I could kind of just get by without having to put too much effort into it yep. because I had so much interest. But when you got to university and engineering, you really had to work. And I remember I also <laughs> discovered uh, alcohol and partying for a short time. <laughs> I had a one year of, of that uh, venting through that. Yep. And also, like, I made great friends. So mm. um, university was just amazing. I Did made you go a, here? I went here, yeah. Okay. I, I, um, I made a friend's name's Joel. Armitage, um, that'd be amazing if you happen to listen to this. But yeah, he was an amazing guy. One of the first good, really good friends I ever made. Mm. And we were uh, inseparable in first year and he lived in one of the dorms and it was so fun. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun, but almost too fun because my GPA definitely hurt uh, Did- as a result of that. I, I was okay, I made it through, yep. but then I, I knew I needed to pick up my socks mm. in second year. Mm-hmm. And I also, around that time, I, I met some really instrumental key people in my life. Mm. One of them is my now business partner, Sebastian. No way. Uh, and one of them is um, my other friend, Chris Mason. And the two of them were just like the top of the class. They're the guys that, you know, were just brilliant. Mm. And uh, in, in slightly different ways, like, Chris is just has this like raw intelligence, and Sebastian, very smart guy, but he has this incredible work ethic. Mm. I remember having this really interesting experience where we're sitting in our homeroom class, and the, there's so many distractions, people yelling and screaming, the microwave going, and like it's just the worst environment you can possibly work in. And he could put his head down and work as if like he could shut off the world. Mm. And it is the most amazing skill that I've never seen anyone have to that degree. Mm. And I've, I've, I tell everyone this, he's the most productive person that I've ever met. Mm. And uh, so that was like an inspiration for me meeting those two guys. How'd you come, how'd you, and, how'd that all happen? Well, it's, this is a, uh, an example of how fate, um, you know, throws what seems like a curveball, but it turns out to be for the best. So in this first year in engineering, I met Joel, we were best friends. I met a whole bunch of people had met some of the best friends in my life, had an amazing time. And then I went to register for my second year of university and due to some kind of like logistical or admin glitch, I couldn't get in the same block. So I was devastated not to be able to get in the same because the way it works is that you had two blocks and you never saw the other block. You had opposite schedules. Mm. So I wasn't able to register with Joel and all the other friends that I'd made. Mm And I just remember I was like heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And I got into the second block and I showed up and that just so happened that that's the block that Sebastian and Chris were in. So I never saw them the first year because we were in opposite blocks. Mm-hmm. And, but that is how I reconnected with Chris because I'd known him from back in junior high and mm-hmm. then he went to a different high school and I met Sebastian for the first time. And I have a very acute memory of meeting Sebastian. So. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sure he won't even remember this. I was sitting, I was 
pretty shy student. Again, um, I was sitting in my desk and Sebastian walked up and he was, he went to argue the, the mark he'd gotten on a quiz. And I, there's no way I'd have the courage to do such a thing <laughs> as a first year student. Uh, and most student, first year students wouldn't be able to argue their marks. It just takes more confidence to do that. Yep. <laughs> in addition to this, he walked up to the professor and said, what was his name? And he, I can't remember his name, the professor's name, but he didn't say doctor, which was like really important as we learned. He said, Mr. And immediately he correct, the professor corrected Sebastian, it's mm. doctor. And, and it didn't even phase Sebastian. Just he, just like, he just kept going. <laughs> and he was arguing about how he should have got like 100% on the quiz and this one question shouldn't have been wrong. And he just like went on and argued and argued and argued. And I was like, just flabbergasted and impressed that he had the uh, courage to do, to do this. It was just like so foreign to me. Anyway, that was my introduction. And then someone leaned over to me and called him like the tennis guy. And so he was kind of known as the tennis guy. Because he, he played was, or wore he short was, shorts? He um, was captain of the varsity tennis team. Oh, no. So, uh, athlete. Yeah, athlete as well. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, eventually we, we ended up in the same lab together. And just by chance, we were standing next to each other and we decided to become lab partners. Hmm. And that's when we became friends. And then we were sort of inseparable. And it was me, Sebastian, and Chris. We were, the three of us were in, did everything together. Hmm. We're in every group project together. And hmm. we became inseparable. And I felt in the beginning, I felt like I was like the third wheel that was being carried along yep. by the two of them uh, because their, their grades were like straight A's and... Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in time, I just sort of rose to the to the challenge, yep. which just sort of pushed me. And then I feel like in time, I even did my fair share of pushing them. Hmm. And uh, yeah, but that's just an example of how we develop at different paces and yeah. how we kind of, yeah, are subject to the influences mm -hmm. that we have in our life. And yeah, it's just a really, I think a neat, uh, neat story to reflect on, yep. on the twists and turns of life and how, the things that you think are devastating yep. at the time turn out to be instrumental to That's your it. whole life. Yep. Did you, um, when you kind of connect with them, <clears throat> besides your grades, like was mm -hmm. it the self-confidence too? Were they, were they able to kind of move through university and just like, whether it's had self-confidence or sh maybe 100%. they didn't, but they showed it? Oh, they, no, no, they had it. They yeah. had it and they showed it. Like, mm. I mean, they weren't, neither one of them were cocky or arrogant. They were just confident. Yeah. And I, that's so important. If you believe that you can do something, I mean, that's sort of like step one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had never had that kind of confidence. Mm -hmm. And in time, I acquired it too. Does it, does it rub off on you? Like you're just, this is living examples that you're with a lot and you're just like, okay, you're starting to find your own. I, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, that was years ago that this influence was so important. Mm -hmm. uh, now I think I have decent confidence. Sometimes I, I, I was telling my wife the other day, I'm like slightly overconfident mm. on everything I do, which mm -hmm. is, I think, perf the sweet spot for mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You need to just be a little overconfident. How anyway. does that, um, listen, you've done it a lot longer than me. That overconfidence, is it? <laughs> just is a it, little bit. Is, is it the idea of, yeah. for me, when I hear that, I think about um, just being able to focus and not be influenced and just like, tr is it trusting your gut intuition or what, like, that little it, bit of confidence. To me, the way that I would uh, define it, the slight overconfidence means that you believe you can do this thing, that there isn't evidence 
proof to say that it can be done at all mm. by anyone, let alone you. Mm. So you, you need that little bit of overconfidence to get over that hurdle. And I, you know the way that I operate and the way Sebastian operates, we're very data-driven. So at the end of the day, you do need to be able to make gut decisions and trust your instincts. Yep. But I actually believe that can lead people astray mm. a lot of times. Uh, I think it can also be kind of lazy. I think usually you're best served to put in some effort and some work to sort of counter your own biases, yep. uh, your inherent biases that you bring to sort of snap quick decisions. Yep. So once you've kind of put in that work to try to overcome that and make sure your decision is more objectively sound, at the end of the day, you need to have the confidence still, right? Yeah. You need to be able to t bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. To me, it's a little bit like like faith, like religious faith or something. Mm -hmm. You have this, just this belief that it can be done. And I remember when we started our business, I had zero doubts. Many people asked me, no were you nervous? You, you left a really cushy career where you were well-paid and you went, you know, to pay yourself $1 an hour and invested money. And mm -hmm. I actually had no doubts mm -hmm. we would succeed mm -hmm. uh, to the point of like stupidity. Like it, when I look back, I feel like I should have had more doubts, but I, I was so confident that we would do it that mm -hmm. I never doubted it. And so that there's so many benefits to that in a way, right? You jump with two feet into it. You don't end up stuck in your old career because you need to like earn a living which prevents you from really being able to invest in the new thing. Yep. So having that sense, that just tiny bit of overconfidence, I think is mm. both uh, useful and maybe even necessary mm. to become an entrepreneur. I've never heard that. I've, it's it's fascinating to hear these things for the first time because it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And then you know to hear you run through the how you how you envision how you think about it, it's, it makes like perfect sense. Well, to me, it does at least. <laughs> um, so university. The three amigos run around for yeah. like the, the duration and and yeah. So from second year on to the end of my time, yep. I did an internship as well. So that made the whole whole time five years. Yep. Yeah, until right until the very end, um, we were thick as thieves. Yep. Did every group project together and worked together, and yeah, I learned uh, so much from those guys. I'm very appreciative of that time. And then again, I hope well later on. I knew that I was also mm -hmm. more, uh, more, uh, more of a contributor to the threesome in yep. terms of, uh, of pushing them as well. Yep. But not, not in the early days. In the early days, I really felt that I was the one getting pushed. So Perfect time. Yeah. Um, so what happens when you graduate? And be, yeah. uh, before we go there, actually, the, yeah. the three of you, did you ever, being like the engineering pieces, there's creativity to it. Mm -hmm. There's problem solving, it's coming up with solutions. Did you guys ever uh, brainstorm ideas? Was there any like yeah. youthful talks? I, I just want to say one thing about engineering. Yeah. So to me, there's a couple different ways to think about it when it comes to university, because university is pretty well curated, I would say, meaning that the problems are pretty bounded. And when you enter the real world, it's not the same thing, it's way more nebulous. It's not well-defined, well-bounded. But in university, they're pretty well-bounded. The difference, I would say, between the student who did well and the student who really did well, like excelled, yep. was really just a function of the effort they were willing to put into it. And so that's where I think Chris and Sebastian and I really ended up seeing eye to eye. Like We were the last people in the lab. Mm. We put in the most effort. And it's, it's really easy to cut corners. It's really easy to 
um, just, I don't know, put in less effort. Yep. And I remember there was never a moment where any of us pushed back against the other to say, oh, this is too much work or this is too much effort or let's just, this is good enough. Yep. There was never a time when we didn't even have to say anything. Mm. Like it wasn't, wasn't even an issue. It was like there was no scenario where good enough was ever going to be even on the table. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where, why we saw eye to eye so much. And I even thinking back, I don't even know why that's how I approached it. Like what aspect of my personality resulted in me needing to like push to that next level. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand the genesis of that, but that's how it was. And that's how yeah, what we really did together. And so we took that right into the working world. So we, we didn't end, so I didn't end up working. I worked with Chris at one company, but right coming out of university, I ended up working with Sebastian at a new startup division of Panasonic. And it was a crazy time because it was year 2000, (laughs) which was the, the, the peak of the tech bubble. Yep. And you know, every company was desperately trying to hire engineers and they had these big job fairs and they would like give all this free stuff and the wages that we were being offered were ridiculous for a first year uh, grad. Mm -hmm. It was just that everyone was clamoring over themselves trying to hire. And so we ended up going to this startup Panasonic where there was eight people to start this whole new division, which was the first, it was called the Panasonic Wireless Design Center. And it was really neat to be part of this initial team that was starting a whole division because especially as a new grad mm-hmm. to witness all of this, I actually was like interviewing and hiring people, okay. which was insane. I <laughs> like just graduated. Uh, yeah. The responsibilities that I got, you know, I wouldn't see again for years and years, mm-hmm. but that was, but again, like I had this like little bit of overconfidence. I was like, I can do this. No problem. I can hire someone. I can do this. I can. And we brought this like work ethic, and this desire to push and not accept good enough. Mm -hmm. And we quickly got this reputation and they called us the golden boys. And again, like, I don't exactly know, Mm -hmm. you know, where the term come from, but, Mm -hmm. but ultimately we were just, we really pushed Mm -hmm. even, and we ran quickly into people that had been in the industry for 10, 15 years that kind of had, little bit of a complacency that occurs, I think, when you're yep. later on in your career. And here's these like whippersnappers out of university that don't know anything, because we didn't know anything, that were telling them, questioning them, challenging them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of them were fine with it, some of them did not like it. Some of them thought we were just like cocky little kids. Yeah. And uh, which we kind of were. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it was just, yeah, it was a super interesting experience. But as I kind of started to realize what it looked like in real life to work for that company than a bunch of other companies. Mm-hmm. I just, it just didn't sit well with me. I just felt m- more than anything. I felt ungratified by the work. Uh, the tech industry moved so fast and so much of our work just never actually got used. Mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking, thinking back over the last couple of years of working, I'm like, what have I actually done? Mm. There's nothing tangible. I'm not actually doing something that matters. Mm. And so that just sort of sat with me and created this discomfort yeah. in me. How long? How long do you think, you know, when you're in the, the corporate world, whatever your duration of time was, how long yeah. 
into it? Did you start having these thoughts of there's got to be something? Couple, a couple of years in, yeah. Sebastian and I, because we actually, as it turns out, both of our fathers are entrepreneurs too. So right. there's a, a little bit of that yeah. that came from our bloodline, if you will. Yeah. What did your dad do? My dad was a geologist, okay. professional geologist for many years. Mm-hmm. And then just the end of his career, he kind of went off on his own, yeah. did it, had his own consultancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sebastian's dad was a businessman. He ran a number of different companies and mm-hmm. started companies. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, we both had this sort of, had witnessed it yep. in our fathers and probably give us a little bit of comfort with it. And then couple that with a little bit of the overconfidence. That's yeah, just because it's like the... Uh, yeah, it's the recipe yeah. for entrepreneurship. Uh, so we, we were kind of mulling around the idea of an engineering company actually for a while. Mm. And then it was right along, right around that time that um, my uncle Billy, he passed away, uh, sadly, of a brain tumor. And he, but he... He, my my aunt Bonnie had give, given me this book about espresso coffee by an author named David Schomer. And he owns a cafe, cafe in Seattle. He still does. I think he still owns it to, to this day. Um, and I read the book. And I'm like, wow, this is so fascinating. Why'd she give you the book? She gave me the book because my uncle was really into espresso. And she kind of knew I was into... The, the culinary world and wine and a little bit interested in coffee. Yeah. Not that, just a little bit interested. Yeah. And and she just felt like could be interesting. I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I would. I wish I would have kind of uh, asked her in more detail mm. the whole motivation behind mm. it. So I have to she could, speculate a bit right now. She could but, see it. She could see something. Yeah. Whether, whether the questions that you had been asked or that yeah. you know when you like perk up when she was doing something. She yeah, probably something just, like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it turned out the book was really important because it piqued a bit of curiosity in me and then I showed it to Sebastian and that's how we kind of got into things together. So we'd sort of like mm-hmm. fuel each other and then uh, I got an espresso machine and he got a better espresso machine. <laughs> and we we kind of started playing and we weren't getting very good results, but we kind of thought there was something more to it. Yep. Uh, and we decided to take a road trip. So we drove to Seattle. And I remember having this really funny experience crossing the border because the border guard was like, why are you going to the States today? And I was like, we're going to a coffee shop. He's like, okay, get out of the car. It's like, it's like, that can't be the case that you're going to the coffee shop. We have to search your car because you're obviously transporting something mm-hmm. illegal. Uh, anyway, so that was that was pretty funny. We went to this coffee shop in Seattle. What was the, um, um, it's so, you'll finish the story, but yeah. just like to, even the start of the story though, to have, for this book, yeah, I guess I guess what I don't understand, I, I don't fully know, is your kind of your senses. You yeah. got your job and where they fit into all this. Like this was just a this is nothing random? to do with work. It's random. This was nothing. I didn't consider this as a career. This is a random thread I was pulling on. But like very random. Just eh? yeah, just a, like a thing I was curious about, mm. and we just sort of went a bit down a rabbit hole. And, That's and, all it really was. It was just a curiosity. There was no at this point. There was no like intention to create a business. There mm. was no thought at all about that. It was like, this is, seems like a fun adventure. Let's see where it goes. And, and, and the curiosity of what makes something better than something else. Is that just like your, well, that one's uh, was already there. That's, that's just in you. I mean, what, when I saw that this thing could be like a craft, like a, something that mm-hmm. an artisan did mm-hmm. that it could be excellent and 
yeah. just piqued my curiosity. Mm. I just didn't believe. I had nothing at that point that could suggest that that even existed. Like I just had bad, pretty gross coffee that kept mm -hmm. me awake more or less, but tasted terrible. I didn't even, the concept that it could taste better, mm -hmm. that it could be on the same level as like the food and wine that I loved mm -hmm. like, was so foreign. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I wanted to understand it better. I was just right. curious. Um, so you crossed the border. Crossed the border. <laughs> Got across the border. They let us through. Wheels on. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we got to this coffee shop and we tasted this restaurant. It was incredible. It was How so much better. How old are you right now at, at that point in time? Early 20s. Okay. Early 20s, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Early mid 20s. Okay. And yeah, early, younger than 25. So 23, 24-ish. Okay. And yeah, we had tons of coffee, so much coffee. We were so jacked. We actually took a picture of ourselves and we still have that picture somewhere to this day. We framed it and mm -hmm. hung it. And I think I put it on our Instagram feed a while back anyway. Cool. We were pretty jacked. And uh, we came back and we're like, we got to figure out how to this, you know, let's reverse engineer this. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And figure out how this worked and try to understand it for ourselves. So. We ordered the same coffee, we ordered coffee from this Vivace, it was called. And we had our espresso machine, we had a grinder, and we still couldn't really get good results. So we modified our espresso machines, put this thing called a PID controller in. <clears throat> Again, just kept going down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And eventually we got something that was like resembled uh, the coffee we were getting there. Yep. And at the same time, I'm just gonna take a quick drink. Yeah, here. of course. It's 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 very interesting though how how it's all connected, right? Your background, <clears throat> of yeah, the engineering background to like research how yeah. it's done. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, now so once I saw that something was possible, yep. I just needed to find a path mm. to get there. Mm. And now you know it's it's so interesting. I'm gonna just take a s small uh, digression to, to to the present time. So now that what I what I've done for ourselves and our company and what Sebastian and I have done is we've sort of we've set this goal um, that that sort of directs our company and what it really is is it's no longer what someone else has done that we're trying to seek and reverse engineer it's more like what's possible and it's more so it's much more aspirational it's like now mm -hmm. we've seen all these sort of ways that you can make coffee better and more interesting and and uh, so now we we have this sort of abstract uh, aspirational idea mm -hmm. of where we want to take it and that's sort of our north star mm -hmm. what we're directing ourselves towards so back back then it was like a tangible yep. actual uh, instance of a certain type of coffee and mm -hmm. a certain type of taste that we were going after but now it's more uh, yep. more of an idea in many ways now that we've uh, created as a result of all of our experiences to know like where where we might be able to take this, yep. where it could go. And that change from an analytical engineering type brain mm -hmm. to like aspirational, a little bit in the clouds, more of yeah. like a direction out there, just a natural progression. Like, and then, but you also have this like artist inside to you. So it's, yeah. not, it's not like a total, it doesn't come out of nowhere, Yeah, but it make, it, it's comfortable. when... When I think about how this all came together, and you know why eventually I quit the engineering job and felt like this was the path we should take, and why now after 16 years I still feel totally sure this is the right path, 
is because it brought together these things, these little subtle things that were missing. Mm. So I, I needed something connected to like taste and flavor. I needed something connect, connected to artisanship. I needed something connected to people and something that was tangible and meaningful where I could impact someone's life in a meaningful, significant way at like a grassroots level, mm -hmm. not like a nebulous high level, kind of like I'm part of a bigger organization doing something that matters. I mean like actually tangible, mm -hmm. being able to see results. Then I needed to be able to take something from an idea and inception and bring it through all the way to the actual implementation and see it actually out there in the world. And the these are all things I've figured out as I've gotten to know myself that I need in order to feel fulfilled mm. in what I'm doing. And so ultimately that's where this business has taken me on a personal level is it's taken all these things that I know, these little aspects of my personality that mm. I know that I need to feel fulfilled. It's combined them all into yeah. one thing. So that's, that's effectively, I mean, that's the benefit of having your own business too. You end up sculpting, blazing the trail of that business yep. uh, as a reflection of your own desires in many ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, and one of my other strong desires was in addition to impacting the lives of say the coffee farmers we work with or the customers that enjoy our coffee, I also felt like I wanted to have a really positive impact on the staff that mm. work for our company. That's mm. always been really important to me as well. Anyway, it's just the unity yeah. of so many different small aspects of my personality yeah. and how I would obtain fulfillment in my own unique way mm -hmm. that culminated in it. All those like all those little moments, you know, if there's like all the things that you value and you know that kind of your whys. Mm -hmm. You discover your why along the, along your journey, right? Totally. There's no way to start. There's no way to start your business and be like, "Here's my 17 whys, and I'm going to craft something." I mean, if someone can do that, good for them. I know <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> like I needed to like elicit them and yeah. like and draw them out through the you process. Experiences, and then just you need yeah. to make make these mental notes. Yeah. When you um, so now to have this new vision direction for the company, it's taken you 16 years to kind of put that on the board and all these experiences. Mm -hmm. That's just is that just just. Mm -hmm. That's how the is that progression? Is that just as a business leader, owner that Or maybe even a personal progression. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think if I can get well, I mean, I guess I already got slightly philosophical here, but <laughs> uh, you know, as as individuals, I believe that as we're growing older and developing ourselves and then in conjunction this business, we sort of if we have this ability to introspect, then we think, okay, well, what's missing? Like, I have these great things, these nice things in my life, but like something is not quite right. Mm -hmm. And then if you can kind of twist that around into sort of flip it from a, the problem and move into the solution space and think about what can I change in my life to fulfill that thing, then that's what I, that's how you incrementally build mm -hmm. and grow. I can, if I think back to how, we were running our company a number of years ago, there was a bunch of things that we had kind of overlooked, we hadn't done yet. Yeah. And part of it was just that the practical considerations of starting a new business, you just can't do everything all at once. You have to be patient and build it incrementally. But there were definitely aspects where I felt, I felt unsettled. Mm. Like this thing isn't kind of where I want it to be. Um, 
And so you kind of ref- reflect on that. What is it that's missing? Okay, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. And then that's you sort of incrementally build different aspects to you know your business and your approach to, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess life yeah. in general. I just believe that to be the case of like in a healthy person mm-hmm. that they can reflect like this and think what's missing and look for some way to to fulfill that. Yeah, that um, creating that space to be reflective. Has that been something that you've, um, is that a new discovery? Is it been something that you've done, but you couldn't really, didn't understand you're being reflective? So how, did, how do you? I think it's that. Yeah. I, it was something that I did, but I couldn't probably put words to it. Yeah. What was it for you? Was what, it, what was it that? Um, where, was your, where was your space? What was mm-hmm. your, these moments you've had in your life where you're able to just either like. I mean, the moments are happening all the time. Yeah. Like it's not like I had one aha eureka moment and like suddenly figured stuff out. But it wasn't like meditation. It wasn't like there wasn't a there wasn't a, a way to get you into a headspace to be thoughtful. I th- I think it's was more like giving myself um, two, two couple of things. Le- learning how to take it a little easy on myself and not be too self critical. Uh, give myself space yeah. to grow and learn and make m- my own mistakes mm-hmm. and. That's just been the natural, my own personal natural evolution, um, and so applying that in a in a business sense, I don't I don't think there's any particular activity that I've undertaken like meditation that's enabled me to be able to step back and self reflect. Yep. Um, I think it's been the na- natural evolution of just again, getting to know yourself better as mm-hmm. you age. I mean, I guess not everyone does, but yep. a lot of people do yep. get to know themselves better as they get older and. Yep realize how they think, how they operate. It is for sure the case that my partnership with Sebastian has enabled that. One thing that I really appreciate about it is we give each other like space, Mm. um, space to make mistakes, uh, space to be ourselves. So it'd be so easy for someone to like, I know all the things about him that can irk someone and, and he knows all the things, you know, about me that can irk him or someone. Mm-hmm. And if you can give that other person space to be that, have those traits that are maybe kind of non-ideal yeah. uh, and not be overly critical of them and just like give themselves space, mm-hmm. then I think you open your yourself up to the possibility of building a comfort in that environment. And I think that's just the best scenario for performance mm-hmm. is... Um, yeah, you're, the the willingness to not be too critical of the other person allows the space for you to be not too critical of yourself. Yeah. I think if 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 I'd felt that Sebastian was so critical of all of my faults and vice versa, I just mm. don't think we would have been able to, well, first of all, probably the partnership wouldn't have lasted. Yeah. But secondly, I don't think we would have been able to develop in the same way um, from the point of view of our personal selves or our business, I think it would have stifled it. Mm -hmm. So that ironically, that tolerance for imperfection is what I think created the space for us to Mm. develop and grow. And I think it still does to this day. (laughs) So it's so cool to hear just um, that thought process, you know, it's just, it's so it's, everyone has different experiences that kind of lead Mm -hmm. them to, to this spot. So it's always, it's really cool to, when someone mm-hmm. gets into it, so thank you. Um, no worries. Take me back to uh, taking apart that machine and trying to figure out the, that how to make the perfect coffee, and then where it goes from there. Yeah, yeah. So back into 
like all the way back to the, the when you're, days pre business days. Yeah, when yeah we were I'd to love to hear that. like when you decide to you know leave when you decide to leave the business and how all yeah. of a sudden you're going to be like we're going to the coffee world. You know there there was I just finished saying a moment ago that there was no eureka for me, but there was a little bit of one. In addition to this experience at this Cafe Vivace where we had this great coffee, there was one really important experience I had um, at a cafe in Vancouver called the Elysian Room. Mm. And this was like circa 2004 or five timeframe. And the, the barista, his name is Drew. And he actually started, I remember all this, it's a very <laughs> acute memory. Uh, it's, it's very important. So he actually ha- owns a coffee roasting company called Bows and Arrows. He's based in uh, Victoria now. And he was this like very handsome, quiet, tall, unassuming guy. And I remember walking into the Elysian room and it, it's just like the name sounds. You feel like you need to like be quiet and like it's very, it's almost like a chapel for mm. coffee. Mm. And it was the first time that I ever walked into an environment where I felt like uh, this is all built around the worship of coffee. Mm. And it was, it was a really cool experience even before I tasted anything. And then Drew made me this espresso and it, blew my freaking mind no way. and I still remember the way it tastes to this day wow. and the funny thing is I don't even think he was that happy in the shot with the shot because I think he wanted to make it again I was like my head was like <laughs> exploding and that when I tasted that and it sort of came off the heels of the Vivace experience mm-hmm. where that was really good and then it so it was sort of like this incremental improvement mm-hmm. from what I tasted in Seattle I immediately drew a line between those two and I put and I drew that line into space. That was the moment where I believed that there was an incredible opportunity with coffee and and there's just so much space to evolve it. Mm. I think the thing that really attracts me to this industry is the opportunity to make an impactful change. If I was to work in the culinary world as a chef or work in the wine world, I feel like the opportunity for change is minimal. A lot of history there, a ton of, you know, development. It's really well established, both of those industries. Okay, maybe I could do good stuff, but I feel like my chance, my opportunity for impact would be less. Mm. Whereas in coffee, I'm literally drawing a line into something that doesn't even exist. Mm. And I think already in the last 16 years, we've treaded new ground. We've done new things that no one's done before and really pushed the envelope. And we've made, it's small, but we've made an impact in the entire industry. And that would have not been possible if we would have gone the direction of wine, or if I would have gone the direction of wine or food. So I think that was the potential for impact was what really yep. kind of eventually solidified my choice to mm. be involved in coffee. Did um, <clears throat> like Drew? Obviously, you remember mm-hmm. his name. You remember everything about that experience. Mm-hmm. Was it was it that impactful that you knew right away to remember this like person, his name, and the experience, and just like I didn't even wasn't co- like I consciously I just had to remember. It, it just, just like, like was like <laughs> zapped <stuck>. in my <laughs> brain. There was no way that was that was I was yep. ever removing that. Mm-hmm. I remember everything about that moment. Wow. I remember how the place smelled. I remember how it looked. I remember the hat Drew was wearing. Like I, I yeah, it was Wild. just one of those indelible moments yep. that just gets seared into your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I just knew, even at the moment, I knew this was an important experience. Like mm. this is going to be relevant for mm. the trajectory of my life. Mm. And I don't think there's actually been too many experiences where I felt like I knew that at the moment. Yep. If I look back, I'm like, oh yeah, those were relevant experiences are important. Mm -hmm. But I knew at that moment, I'm like, this experience is gonna be important mm. forever. So where does it take you? Like how, you know, the, the progression of, yeah. you know, you draw that line, you got a full-time job, I don't know what other, you're, what other um, mm -hmm. depend, you know, whether it's family, whatever, but to make that. That was one thing that was really easy for me. I didn't have dependencies. Mm. So, Whereas Sebastian, he was married and he had a child on the way. Mm. So I took one for the team and I moved to Vancouver uh, and to learn about coffee. So this is in 2006. Quit your job? I quit my job. I, I slept on my, my friend's couch in Vancouver. He'd recently moved there, his name's mm -hmm. Joe. And he, he was uh, working as a lawyer and he had just this basement apartment. He was just starting. Uh, it was, so we, we, we lived together in this tiny little basement apartment. Mm -hmm. And I just went full in on working at different coffee shops no and a roastery and just trying to learn as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Spent a ton of time at this place, the Elysian Room, mm -hmm. and just tried to meet coffee people and just learn as much as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. um, did you go to Vancouver? You and Sebastian have an agreement? Like, okay. We could potentially want to get into the coffee world. At like, that point, we're like, we're in. Okay. It's and just a question of how this is going to happen and when it's going to happen. So it's not about if. It was happening. Mm. So let's let's learn. Okay. Let's invest. This is what we do. We research. We're engineers. We mm. learn about things. We go deep. Mm -hmm. We're not going to start a business without having worked in those businesses, mm. having uh, understanding them better. Yep. So we just yeah went as deep as okay. possible. And yeah, I volunteered. To, uh, to be the one that relocated since yep. I didn't have any attachments. And it was an amazing time, actually. I spent about six months in Vancouver just learning and mm. absorbing all I could. And then I came back, and that's right when we opened the farmer's market no in Calgary. And that was at the old Curry Barracks farmer's market, mm -hmm. which is now, well, the building's still there, but yep. the market's not there anymore. That, um, that deep dive into like research and figuring it out, mm -hmm. Obviously, that's your move, just with your mm -hmm. background. But you felt confident after you'd kind of been in the industry, you know, done your research to come back. And well, like, I mean, this is where that <clears throat> slight bit of overconfidence comes again. Like I knew nothing. If I think back to what I knew, I knew nothing. <laughs> but thinking? I felt like I knew something at the time. <laughs> so you know, have you ever heard the adage that if you look back and cringe at your life, then you're progressing? No, I haven't heard that one. It's it's a thing. Mm. So if you kind of like. If you think back to your old <laughs> self and like how you, the, what you didn't know, or yeah, yeah, I just cringe when I think about what I didn't know. Mm. So that I guess indicates that I'm growing and learning, yep. and yep. yeah, I. But I was just fueled by passion and mm. uh, yeah, over the slight overconfidence. <laughs> <laughs> those those two things yep. just uh, pushed us to mm. to move forward and do our best. And yep. I think at the end of the day, that's what we did. We did our best and mm -hmm. we put in the work. Mm -hmm. So I'd be there, you know, I'd open the cafe at six in the morning and I'd be there until three at night. Just, you know, I'd spend three, four hours like working on like how to make the coffee taste better after we closed the shop. Yep. So it was just really steep learning curve. But yeah, we put, the only thing we knew how to do was like put in a lot of effort yep. and 
try to you know use good scientific processes to understand things and mm -hmm. but yeah it was just that drive that i was what fueled us in many ways in the beginning and we just yeah we we're clueless we didn't know anything about running a business we had no business backgrounds mm -hmm. so we didn't really know how to we kind of just use logic um, and then sheer will yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of push our way through all the challenges of you know how do you hire someone how do you retain them how do you manage the finances um, how do you manage all the logistics yeah mm -hmm. how do you manage growth mm -hmm. um, you know what do you look for when you signing a lease um, how do you design a space all these things we sort of figured out trial yep. by fire yeah figured out as we went and made a bunch of mistakes and tried not to make the same mistakes again mm -hmm. uh, yeah and then went from there um so that first that first place mm -hmm. was a bit was sebastian when you guys decided to do that is he all in at that point is he like mm -hmm. right beside you working those crazy hours all doing in. the r and d all in yeah yeah so once we uh opened the farmer's market he quit his job too mm. and we went all in mm. i remember that's it we we worked obscene hours like and I remember people asking us, so you're all, you're doing engineering on the side and doing that. I'm like, no, I mean, I don't even have time to sleep, let alone mm -hmm. do another job. No, it was, um, it was only open on the weekends, thankfully. So it was yep. open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yep. And we had the rest of the week to just like plan and figure out how to fix the things that were broken and train and yep. whatever we needed to do. We used all that time. We had no time off. I worked seven days a week, you know, 14 hours a day. And I like to tell people, actually, they ask me for entrepreneurial advice. I say, number one, schedule yourself for 14 hours a day, seven days a week for five years. If you can do that, if you can create that kind of schedule, then you can be a successful entrepreneur. Mm. If you can't, it's going to be tricky because it just requires that kind of dedication in my yeah. experience. Yeah. And then beyond that, if you kind of get past the five years is arbitrary, but if you get past the hurdle of that initial startup, then you can pull back and have like a normal life. Mm -hmm. But it just requires all that like startup energy yep. and the commitment to really, you know, clear any hurdles, all the hurdles you're gonna come across mm -hmm. with any business, I believe. Do you um like that drive, it's different, right? Like it's not there, <clears throat> not everyone has it. Not everyone can find that passion that they're actually going to like allocate that energy to. Yeah. Do you feel um, not lucky, but do you feel like there's a bunch of experiences that got to that moment where you knew it was I had. I mean, this? I actually do feel lucky. I feel lucky in a couple different ways. I feel lucky that I have the the energy to allocate. It's not everyone does, and I did, and I do. Um, I feel lucky that I have that I found a partner to like synergize with that also has the energy to allocate. Mm -hmm. And then I feel lucky in that we happened upon the timing that we did because it is not the case that our business would have worked anywhere at any time. Um, I personally think that that's slightly delusional that people think that that ever exists, mm -hmm. um, especially it doesn't exist for us. Our business succeeded because there was no real coffee in Calgary at the time, which is one reason why we did it in the first place. Yeah. But so we didn't really have competition. We could make a ton of mistakes in the beginning without coming back to haunt us too much yeah. because we didn't have competition. So I think there's so much that I credit 
the, the, the Calgary market was ready for this. There were people that were hungry for it. Mm-hmm. There was enough of a critical mass in Calgary of people that cared about this to drive across the city, yeah. to wait half an hour in line at the farmer's market for a coffee. We were so slow. <laughs> and so all of these things like, yeah, they, they combined to create this really fortunate timing that allowed us to be in. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm very grateful for that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't pretend for a moment that this all could have happened without some really fortunate yeah. timing as well as obviously like I, my input, Sebastian's input, like are mm-hmm. critical, but the timing is critical too. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, when you're in it though, like all those outside scenarios, do you, yeah. do you, do you note those? Do you understand that those are possible pressures that you just kind of, you're going to work through them and then you get to a point now. Are you saying you, like at the moment did yeah. I realize timing was important? Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. You're no, just this like is moving? upon, yeah, this is upon reflection. Yeah. Um, this is upon like in the beginning, I was like, again, over slight overconfidence. Mm-hmm. I love so, that like, by the way. <laughs> we, we can do this. Like yeah. we, I believe so strongly that we could change people's minds that mm. people would see how much better it is and then put in the effort and this small incremental expense to choose the superior product. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention the improved ethics of it all. And that's not, we haven't even dug into that, yeah, but yeah. like this is just like mm-hmm. from a pure product quality point yeah. of view, I was so totally sure that we had a constituency for that in Calgary. Mm. I didn't even doubt it for a second. Mm. And it wasn't until you know many years later where I reflected to think, oh yeah, actually the timing was pretty damn important. I'm glad that, maybe I'm glad I didn't overthink it too much mm-hmm. then. Might've spooked me, but yeah. yeah, it was pretty critical. Those, um, the... I don't want to use the word vision because it's like mm-hmm. mission statement. What drove you? Was it just to like provide an amazing product to mm-hmm. like let people have this great experience around this? We, we actually did kind of concoct a vision statement early on. And what we wanted, we wanted people to rediscover coffee. Mm. We wanted to delight people with this really amazing culinary experience with coffee and show them that it's not just a bitter drink that can keep them awake. I had this experience standing in line for a stampede breakfast just one year prior to starting the business. And I remember someone grabbed a coffee from the line and they took a sip and said, hmm, it's good, it's not bad. And at that moment, I'm like, that is exactly how people define good, not bad. Mm. That is sad, Mm. we can do much better than that. It doesn't have to be defined as not bad. Mm. And so, yeah, what I really wanted to do is for people to raise the standards. And that's actually how we've reframed our mission statement now. Our new sort of like succinct version of our mission statement is that the bar of coffee is too low and we're here to raise the bar. That's like just in a very simple way, mm-hmm. our core our core purpose. Yeah. And obviously we have many things that support that in terms of how we do it, yeah. why we do it but that is our core purpose and it was then and it is now. And one thing that ended up happening along the way is that initially it was really about that great product in the hands of customers yep. in Calgary. And now for me, it's much more than that. It's not just about that. Mm-hmm. I've like this evolution we were talking mm-hmm. about, I've brought in all for myself, I brought in all these other elements that have been become really important yep for me to define success mm-hmm. of our business. Yep. So some of them have a lot to do with what happens at the coffee farms and origin mm-hmm. 
to see, sorry, the, I need to see these people involved thriving yeah. there. Otherwise something is broken. Mm -hmm. And I kind of knew that was always the case, but I didn't really know enough about what happened mm -hmm. at coffee farms to see what that really meant. Yeah. But now I know that needs to be in place. And then I also realized that I, it's really important to me that m the staff of our company really feels like a part of all of that. Mm -hmm. And that we are, we're running a company where you know, the staff would say, this is the best place I've ever worked. Yeah. And these are the reasons this, this, and this, and this, yeah. and this is like now become something that's really important to me. It's not like it wasn't important to me at the mm -hmm. time, but I almost felt like I couldn't handle all of that, all mm -hmm. of that at once. Mm -hmm. Initially, my vision was a bit tunnel vision. It was all about like quality, quality, quality of yep. the product. And then in time, it's like, okay, now it's not just about quality of the product. It's about the everyone involved that we work with thriving. Mm -hmm. And then it's about... And then the last piece of that was like, I really want to build a company that is just, you know, where the staff feel like it's excellent. And this is, this is the last piece of the puzzle for me, I think in many ways. That, um, that transition from <clears throat> like product, <clears throat> you know, honing it, making it the mm -hmm. best possible product you can sell. Obviously that makes you money. Yeah. Drives people through the door. Mm -hmm. And the evolution of where you're at right now is fascinating to me because it's like the, yeah. it's the bigger why stuff, yeah. the purpose, which is yeah, it is really cool. Yeah. What do you think that what allows you to make that transition? Do you think it's like you're in a financial spot where you can, yeah. or, or you've got a system in place where you understand the quality is that the bar is there? Yeah, I mean, and, and none of that is any less important. Mm -hmm. I just there were just things that were missing, yeah. things that weren't properly emphasized and developed. And yeah, for sure it's, you know, in many ways it's the people. Like the that last piece I was telling you about like the staff of our company yep. in many ways is uh only facilitated by the staff of the company. Like we only have the bandwidth and the capacity to be able to focus on that through the nature of having those key people in place. Yeah. And uh and it's not like I I've appreciated from the very first person that worked for us uh Will Will was the first person that he, you know, I appreciated our staff. It's not like I didn't, mm. but it was like to make a conscious effort to try to develop a company yeah. where your staff really feel like they're part of something that's mm. important. That wasn't something that I consciously, I, it was like it bugged me for yeah. a long time. The back of my mind, like something's missing. I really, really need to do this. Mm. I can't say that uh, we have a great company unless we do this. Yeah. And that's sort of, that's how the evolution has happened. It's like, okay, we did this thing, but I can't really say we have a great company unless we do this. And now I have a new, a new one that I'm working on like in the future, and that has to do with marketing. Cool. So that's something we, we recently hired a director of marketing for our company. And we're really, I'm really thinking about like, how can we take what we've done, this great product and this like really great process and great foundation, we have a great team, mm -hmm. but how can we show the world that this thing is great? Because mm. it almost feels like the tree in the forest problem. Yep. Like if you yep. know you have this great thing that nobody knows about, like, does it mean anything? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and then I also just, for better or for worse, have come to realize the importance of that. Yep. In, the, in the beginning, I was like, 
only quality matters. Yep. If I make a quality product, people will just see it. They'll figure it out. They'll taste the product we make. They'll see it's superior. They'll see like our ethics are superior. They'll see. They'll just see it. I really believed that it would be so self-evident, mm-hmm. and now <laughs> I don't believe that's the case. Mm. I think you can. That takes you some of the way, yep. and that has been part of our success. Is that some people have found it yep. evident. But frankly, there's just so much noise out there mm-hmm. and that it's so hard for people to like f- discern what's real, yep. what's not yep, yep. real. And <clears throat> I think maybe, maybe I don't know if this is totally true. Maybe you can comment on this, but I almost feel like people's guards are up higher than ever before. It's like they're just, people are so inundated with the social media yep. and these type of things that yep. they're even less likely to trust what you're saying. Um, off the cuff, yep, right? Sure. So if you say you're doing all these great things, and you know, and they're even skeptical when they taste your product. Like, there's just a yeah. higher level of skepticism. Mm-hmm. There's a thicker wall to get through yep. before you can get to people and create that transformation, mm-hmm. that thing that we've always been about. Mm-hmm. It's like a armor or something that we have to penetrate. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've started to cool. realize, and that's I think the next evolution of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, to see, to do a better job of that. I find um, it's well, it's fast. That's obviously fascinates me, but mm-hmm. I feel I feel like and I'm not the the solution is storytelling. Yeah, you know, it's just like the, this. Mm-hmm. You, me hearing this story, right? Yeah. Now I have this like deeper sense of of what your company is about. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. Yeah. I know. I know. There's a bunch of coffee care people. Mm-hmm. Businesses out there, but now I know I know this story, yeah. and that story holds weight. Mm-hmm. And that I think when people make decisions, yeah, if they if they know the story, yeah, that story is being told different ways through different lenses and different voices. Yeah, I, I think, think you're it, right. It builds trust. But you are right about the storytelling. I think different types of stories and different ways of telling stories connect with different people, right? Totally. So it is it is a matter of trying to figure out how to tell those stories and yeah. and what to, stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will connect with people because it's going to be different for everyone, for right? sure. So, yeah, that I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. And all of the work I've done in research, I've done a lot of research on how persuasion works, yep. our our cognitive biases. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, how people make decisions, how people change minds, all these things. Read books and books about mm-hmm. all this stuff. And it all comes back actually to exactly what you said, storytelling. Yep. That's a common thread yep. that connects, um, allows we to, to cut through that armor yep. and get people into a space where they can engage without the same kind of like barrier and wall and resistance yep. that automatically blocks it and the skepticism that mm-hmm. blocks it. You can cut through that with storytelling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to tell you that, but, no, but, but I've concluded the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And even recently I've concluded it, just hear, like hearing more and more evidence that yeah. that's, that's the way to connect with people. And mm-hmm. that's, that's even the way people remember. Like they remember through stories as well. For sure. So yeah, it's such a powerful way. I mean, it's still a bit nebulous. Yeah. So now you have for to sure. take this like for sure. kind of undefined concept and then translate it into something tangible, mm-hmm. something that works yep. and uh, something that's authentic and doesn't just sound contrived. But yep. yeah, um, I don't ask this very often, but I feel like you just you got this monster behind you right now. 
when you started mm-hmm. at the farmer's market, mm-hmm. you know, the years of 14 hours and, 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 yeah. did you have, did you have, did you have the vision of where this could be today? Did you, could you see it? To some extent I yeah. did. Yeah. I, I, so when we started our business, we opened a cafe. It was quite intentional that we didn't start roasting our own coffee or anything beyond that. We're like, let's do one business at a time. Yep. Let's first learn how to run a cafe really well. We'll buy roasted coffee from someone else. Mm-hmm. But eventually I really want to roast coffee and I really want to be involved in the sourcing of the coffee. Mm. I didn't even know exactly what either of those meant exactly, yep. but I knew I wanted to do them. And so, yes, I would say back in 2007, we already knew we wanted those two aspects of our business. So mm. in some ways we had yeah, in mind that that yep. was the direction we were going. Yep. Again, I didn't know how to do it, but I felt like we can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the drive and passion to really, um, yeah, find a path there. Yep. Certainly along the way, there's some things I discovered that have changed exactly how we implement that. But mm-hmm. I think the ideas was there all along. And the scale, the scale of it? The scale. <clears throat> That's a good question. The scale is something that I was not. Uh, I did not think we would do initially. Mm. I was really quite adamant that we would be really small, like yeah. one cafe, two cafe. Yeah. I felt that we wouldn't be able to do quality yeah. if we got too, if we grew too big. I didn't know what too big was, but I was sure that at some point there was a concept of too big, and that would prevent us from doing quality. And that was the only reason why I was waking up in the morning. Like I'm doing this business for one reason only, and that's to do quality. If any day came where I wasn't doing quality, I'm out. Mm. I will leave it and go do something else because Mm. I have no desire to be involved in something where I'm not proud of the quality. And here's the irony of that statement. If I went back and drank the coffee that we were serving those initial days of the farmer's market, I would never serve that coffee. It's way below my standards. And, and that, but that's, I think that's the nature of how these things work. You yeah. redefine your targets, which is a good thing. And you're always reevaluating and redefining. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to have that sound like, you know, lipser or like a nice sentiment. Yeah. But it, it's way harder to truly execute on that on a daily basis because it's so easy to like let things slip and make justifications yeah. and you know, this is the best we can do, this constraint, this constraint, you know, mm-hmm. it's really easy to say all that stuff. Yeah. And then on the flip side, like my analytical brain's like, I can only do so much in a certain amount of time. It's just not possible to do more. Yeah. So it has to be like building an evolutionary. What I really don't want to do is go backwards. And so there's been some decisions that we've made that have great cost to our company and and I just, but I, I can't do it. I can't un, I can't go backwards in quality. Mm. I have to be, I have to be making forward progress. Mm. And so this is, I mean, in many ways, sometimes we're a little uncompetitive actually in the decisions we make because we have such high costs. Yeah. But I just like I can't do it because I just, I can't mm. feel like we aren't moving forward and evolving it and. These are the these are the types of stories that I want to tell. Yeah. Like when it comes to the marketing, yeah. I would like to talk about the journey we took um, from something we were trying to do our absolute best, mm-hmm. but when I look back, it wouldn't even be nearly good enough. Yeah. And then made made these incremental improvements, 
and then made these like really important um, big strides in quality. Yeah. And again, or one of our I think most important things that we've done is just been really honest about where we're at. Mm. Really like objectively cool. honest about where we're at. Mm. And I think that's that's the way, that's what separates someone that does something good from something great. Because let's say you're a chef, okay? You're making a meal at a restaurant. If you can be super honest about the quality you're producing, you have, you're so much more able to evolve and improve. Yep. If you're so confident that you're great or you, you kind of need to be great because your ego or whatever, mm -hmm. it really prevents you from being able to evolve. You're yep. just going to kind of get here and yep. stop. So I think your someone's ability to be like truly objective with their own product and not yeah. like just back padding. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard, but that is the key, I think, in someone getting better. Hmm. This is like um the other cool thing about the show is I get like a it's like my master's in like <laughs> entrepreneurship, <laughs> which is so good. And that's a selfish piece for me, right? I get to hang out with guys like you and just listen to what makes you tick, which I, I that's why this you know before we got on, you're like, why? And yeah, this is part of it, right? Yeah, and I just like listen. It's the, it's the yeah. same way that you experience those like sensations when you walk in that first coffee shop and meet Drew, like, yeah, that sticks with you. Yeah, these conversations that's my thing. So, yeah, anyways, thank you. Um, I like to end the show with one question. Mm -hmm. When I say Calgary, where does your head go? It's my hometown. It's where I grew up. I feel a special affinity to Calgary, especially since I left Calgary for a while. And you know, I'm, I think a lot of people can identify with the grass is greener syndrome. I had it in my mid-20s. I was like, I got to live in Europe. It's so much better there, so much more culture, better food, better wine. And then I did live there and I was like, it's pretty great, but so is Calgary. Calgary's mm -hmm. pretty great. And I could rattle off so many things that I really like about this city. Yep. Uh, there's some, it's just like it's, there's so many little special things. And so I'm super proud to live here and um, super proud to see the quality of coffee in the city and for my part of it and mine and Sebastian's part in it, really proud to see the way it's evolved. Mm -hmm. And it's evolved partly because of what we've done and others that have taken up the mantle, but it's also evolved because of customers and the fact that they've like, be, they've demanded it and said like this, is, you know, now they've, they're the ones that are really important part of this mm -hmm. standard raising. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really, I think the same thing has happened in the culinary aspect of our city too, but I just really feel, um, yeah, privileged to be, to live in Calgary and to, to be, to have set up our business here. Yeah. So cool, man. Um, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Yeah, My you're pleasure. also a busy, busy person, so I'm really cool that we got the opportunity to have this chat because now they're uh, inviting me. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and it's connected to the family too, so I'm just like, yeah. now I know the story. So when your name comes up, I'm like, ah, I can nice. tell you a story. Nice. <laughs> uh, so thank you again. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah.